welcome to Recast, presented by the Baptist Union of Scotland. Each episode will look at a key issue of mission or discipleship for church leaders in Scotland. We will be bringing you key voices, practical insights and unique stories, all focused on the church in Scotland. Welcome to the Recast. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to download this episode. My name's Glenn Innes, and I am here with my friend and co-host, Lisa Holmes. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Glenn. This is good, isn't it? Getting back to these again. Yeah, we've not done one of these in ages. Uh, so I guess an apology, uh, but uh, there's two things going on. Well, probably more than two things, but two key things mm-hmm. going on. One, uh, the guests that we're trying to line up are have been problematic to get and so mm-hmm. that's one reason and the other reason is uh well we're we're both quite busy uh mm-hmm. and uh this one doesn't pay quite as well as things like the rest is politics and the rest is history <laughs> and i reckon those guys are doing okay but there's no extra cash in this for us so not so motivated or maybe it's got something to do with the fact we've both been on holiday as well so uh all of yeah yeah. That's it, isn't it? We were like we do, all of us, I guess, super busy, ram packed because you're going on holiday. Oh yeah. Uh two weeks I'm work before sure. you go off and then an extra week's work when you come back. Yeah. I think that's kind of the same idea. Not that the, not that this relates to me just now, but but like cleaning the house before you have a clean if you have a cleaner, isn't it? It's that thing. I need to get it all sorted to justify being on holiday. Yeah. <laughs> but, we used to But the result is we get to go on holiday, which is hugely good isn't nice. it nice um so you went somewhere quite exciting uh, well yeah we we did um although i must say uh, my uh our exciting that we went to cape verde which mm-hmm. is an archipelago uh just off the coast of senegal which at this point sounds incredibly luxurious uh, uh the reality is we went into the 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 travel agent and said where can we go that's hot and cheap? And that, mm-hmm. that those were our categories. <laughs> there was nothing fancier than that. But we did. We had, we had really lovely times. A family, um, uh, my wife and my daughter have both been very busy with things, uh, applying for universities and with work and all of that. So it was great to go away, spend some time mm-hmm. together, play card games and uh, read books, which is about mm-hmm. the sum total of what we did. Brilliant. Uh, but it was very relaxing. Sunshine in late October is, mm, is, is the a best. good thing, right? It's really nice. Yeah, it's a shame they can't see your suntan, Glenn, isn't it? <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be looking hard. I needed an extra week at least for some of that. You've got to remember, Scottish people, we start off blue and we have to go with darker colour before we're ever, ever even at white before we can go brown. So not much of the suntan. Uh, but we had, we had a great time. It was uh, very nice. It was very nice. But uh, you talk about me going to exotic places. You were much <laughs> more exotic, right? You were visiting family, though. I mean, that's really all you did in your holiday. Yeah, no. So, um, so my brother, sister in law, and we nephew moved out to Mauritius, and clearly hardship, somebody hardship. somebody needed to take it for the team and go out to check that they were okay. <laughs> so, you know, managed to find a couple of weeks to do that. Um, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because it was it was all the things you would imagine. Um, and I'll I'll not make you feel bad about it by telling you what those Thank are. You. But there's something nice about um being there with family. Um. Uh, don't don't get to see my little nephew terribly often. Going to football practice with him and uh, 
I've seen them readers reading books and then hanging out with their friends and playing volleyball on the beach, international community. It, and we got to go to their church. And it, so it was all the lovely holiday things, but actually it was the stuff that arguably is, has more meaning as well. So it was, it was really, I mean, it was really special to go there and nice. just have a proper break and be restored. And Good. I don't know, we're not, not always great at doing that, are we? No, no, I, I think that's true. Uh, to take a very serious turn off of a slightly uh, flip frivolous intro, uh, you know, I think I think that's true, and you know, I, I would reflect that I think um, I've had more conversations with ministers in the last three months about mm-hmm. kind of some level of exhaustion or a sense of disillusionment with with the calling, mm-hmm. or or a sense how would you put that maybe a sense of not feeling having the energy or vision for another goal. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think there is a sense of, okay, we got through COVID, we got through the period after COVID, and now we're in this other bit. Mm-hmm. And there's a real sense of, whoa, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. So I think that point about caring for ourselves and making sure that we actually get some space and time to rest and recover is is really important. Yeah, definitely. And and I think, you know, this has been said before by better people than me, but, you know, we are human beings and not doings. But actually, our kind of Western mindset is much more towards being a human doing and assessing ourselves by that, really. Uh, So being somehow a little bit like we were saying seems like, oh, I shouldn't really talk about this because because I didn't do anything. (laughs) I just was for a few weeks. so. Yeah, I, I mean, it's funny because I came back from holiday. I felt like I had to justify that yeah, I'd sat on a beach, but I read five books. Uh, yeah, well done, Glenn. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I, I produced something. I was I was productive. I I I I read five books, but uh, I mean, the bottom line is they were mostly rubbish uh, novels. Mm-hmm. But uh, I did I did accomplish something. Please tell me I did a good job. Yeah, well uh, done. This uh, this short series uh, in. Um, in the recast is uh, picking up some of the talks from our uh, recent Canopy uh, Autumn programme. Mm-hmm. And uh, this one, this talk in particular, uh, runs off the back of what we were uh, just talking about. And uh, it's a talk by uh, Dr. Carmen Imes. Uh, Carmen is the Associate Professor of Old Testament at Talbot School of Theology, which is part of Biola University out in California, another very hard place to live with no sunshine in October. (laughs) Uh, But Carmen uh, has written a number of books and articles, but her most recent book is a book called Being God's Image, Why Creation Still Matters. And that's really the subject matter of her talk here. And I think it's a brilliant uh, insight for us mm. into what it is to be human and how that impacts on how we live day to day and how we uh, relate to one another, to God and to creation. Uh, mm. So I think it's it's theological, but it's really helpful. Did you yeah, enjoy it? Absolutely. Lisa? Yeah, so it was absolutely great and definitely one of those you need to come back to more than once to yeah. really reflect on some of the things that she's speaking about. Yeah, so enjoy the talk and uh, tune in in the next uh, over the course of the next couple of weeks, and we will have uh, the rest of the seminars from Canopy Online. Well, it is 
a huge honor and privilege to address you today as the Baptist Union of Scotland. As I understand it, you're gathering in homes and churches across Scotland to reflect together on what it means to be the image of God and what it means for you as a church to to speak into culture, to invite others to join your fellowships, to even uh, mentor and train and disciple your young people as they're in engaging in an increasingly hostile world where there are so many different versions of what it means to be human and what life is all about. And it's my contention that we need to start with Scripture. That's not too radical, I hope, that we need to, to look to Scripture to answer the most basic question, who are we and why are we here? I believe that we find robust answers to that question in the book of Genesis. And so what we're going to do today is look at some passages in Genesis. There are three key passages that speak of humans as being God's image. And so I want to unpack some of what I've learned as I've reflected on and studied these passages, because I'm convinced that in a world where so many people and, and institutions and movements are clamoring to tell you how you can create your own identity, how you can find yourself, uh, how you can self-actualize, that actually scripture puts us on a very different path. Rather than looking within ourselves to find our own meaning and our own identity, the scriptures call us to look to the one who made us as the one who defines who we are and why we're here. And so it is, is with great joy that we turn to the scriptures together to see what does the, what does the Bible say about what it means to be human. And, and after we look at these key passages and consider their ancient context, their literary context, to see what theological themes emerge, then we're going to turn to some contemporary issues. I realize that I live very far from all of you, and there are likely to be cultural differences and situational differences between us, but I suspect that in this world that is connected by so many different forms of media and entertainment and travel, that many of the challenges that you face and that I face are the same. And so that we can reflect together on what does the scripture say that can help us navigate this cultural moment so that we can live out of our true identity instead of out of a sense of false identity or self-constructed identity uh, that is problematic. So we begin where the scriptures begin uh, with humanity in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. We'll also read verse 28, but for now, just 26 and 27 will be on the screen for you. This is an adapted version of uh, the NIV or NIB, as you call it there. Um, I've made just a few tweaks to bring it in closer alignment, I think, with the Hebrew so that I can help make some points about what it's saying. So it will sound familiar with a little few differences. Then God said, let us make humankind as our image, as our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind as his own image. As the image of God, he created them. 
male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Now, it seems to me that at least in my context, when we turn to Genesis 1, we're often turning there uh, to engage in debates about the origin of the earth. How did God make the world and how long did it take him to make it? But I believe that when we focus only on that conversation, and it's an important conversation, but when we focus only there, we miss the sense of purpose that God is actually giving us in Genesis 1. That Genesis 1 is here primarily to answer the question of why God made the world and what we're here for. Why are we here? So it's to that why question that we're going to focus um, this morning. When it says, let, let us make humankind as our image, the word image in our culture might conjure up all sorts of things. When I look in the mirror in the morning, I see an image of myself. Is that what God means when he says he's going to make us as his image? Is it that we look like him? Well, actually, what helps us out the most with this question, um, and, and we have a whole history of interpretation of what is what does it mean to be the image of God? And many theologians and in Bible interpreters have come to this without a a robust understanding of ancient Near Eastern culture. And so they have speculated. They've speculated that perhaps this is whatever makes humans different from animals is what it means to be the image. So then they've used the image of God as a kind of basket that holds all the things that make us different from animals. We are more rational than animals on the whole. We are more relational. We have a, a wider network of relationships than animals do. We have a, a sense of moral, a moral compass, if you will, or a, a moral sensibility that's different from animals. And so the, is that what it means to be the image? These are some of the, the primary proposals that have been floated through the ages about what it means to be the image of God. But I'm proposing that we go back to the Hebrew language itself and ask, what does, what does, what does the word image mean in that context? not what do I think it might mean in mine. And what we find is that the word for image in Hebrew, which is the word selim, has a very concrete and three-dimensional meaning. A selim is a statue or an idol. And if, if we track that word through the rest of the Old Testament, that's how we see it being used. Ancient Near Eastern cultures, usually uh, as they worshiped various deities, they would build a temple and then in the most holy place of that temple, they would place a selim. And that selim would, would represent the presence of the deity. It would indicate that this is the authorized place of worship and that the that statue is in a sense receiving the worship that worshipers bring and deflecting it to the true deity who's unseen and in the heavenly realm. It's so it's against that backdrop that Yahweh says to his people, let us make, that he communicates to us in scripture, that he's said to his uh, angelic host, let us make humankind as our image, as our tselem. In other words, when God creates the universe 
as a cosmic temple in which he's going to take up residence, he doesn't appoint a statue to, to, to which we direct our worship, but he creates human beings as the signal of his reign and as the symbol of his presence. So on the, on the screen, you'll see I have a statue of Hadad Yithel. He's the king of Guzan in ancient times. And the reason why I'm showing you this statue is because it's a remarkable glossary for us as we try to figure out what it means, what, what a tselem is and how it functions. You can't see it at this resolution, but if you were able to zoom in on the skirt, on the bottom of his skirt, that flat surface is actually inscribed with a message. And the message uh, in the message tells us that this statue is indeed a statue of Hadad and that he's the king of Guzan. And it very helpfully tells us that the statue itself is a tselem of him. And so it helps define the word for us. And he here's the situation. Hadad was a king over a smaller territory, but he went out and conquered a new territory in battle and in order to indicate that he was king over that new territory, he set up this statue of himself as a reminder of who's boss and as a symbol of his rule. And so when God says that he's created humankind as his image, he's indicating that everywhere humans are in our embodied selves, our three-dimensional selves, we are a reminder or a symbol of the presence of God, we remind the rest of creation and each other of his rule and reign over all things. And so it makes sense that the, the next line we see in Genesis 126 is, so that they may rule. Because if image of God is our identity, we are the image, we are that three-dimensional representative of the deity, the the vocation or the purpose for that identity is to rule over creation on God's behalf. It's not to build kingdoms for ourselves. It's not to self-actualize or become fully independent and self-sufficient, but rather to cooperate with other humans in carrying out the rule and reign of God on this planet. I think it's there's so much that we could say about this passage. There's so much that jumps out at me. But one thing we can't miss is in verse 27, when it specifies that when God made humankind has his image, we're talking here about male and female. Both men and women are the image of God fully from the very beginning. Both men and women have the identity as God's representative and the vocation to rule over creation. We were built for collaboration. We were built for partnership. Together, we're supposed to get this job done. That's inspiring to me because as I look back over the history of humanity, I see a lot of people dominating other people. I see a lot of humans ruling over other humans. And yet in this passage, humans are never told to rule over each other. We're told to together rule over the non-human world. We're supposed to be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. 
That is to say, we're supposed to maintain the order that God created in Genesis 1, to maintain the space for, for human and animal and plant flourishing. That is the first thing we need to recognize about being human. There are lots of other things that we will do in the world. There are lots of uh, specific endeavors that we may engage in, but at our core, our core identity is that we're the image of God, that we represent his rule, and that we participate in carrying it out. For such a foundational concept as the image of God, it is really surprising that there are only three passages in the Old Testament that mention the image of God. The first is the one we've already read, and the second is in Genesis chapter 5. So we'll look at that next. Genesis 5 is after Adam and Eve's disobedience. They've been exiled from the garden because they failed to trust God's good intentions for them and to look to him for wisdom. They wanted to self-actualize. They wanted to find wisdom on their own terms. And so they, they had to leave. And in Genesis 5, we're, we're told this is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created humankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them, and he named them humankind when they were created. So this is a recap of what we've already heard. And then we get a genealogy, which is not typically the place we go for inspiration from scripture, but I'm convinced that if we linger with genealogies, they have much to teach us, and this one is no exception. Verse 3 says, when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, according to his own image, and he named him Seth. Now, many interpreters have come to this and they've said, oh, something has been lost here. We used to be the image of God, and now Seth is just the image of Adam, not the image of God. I don't think that that conclusion is warranted, and the reason it's not is because if we look at our third passage in the Old Testament that talks about the image of God, we find in Genesis 9-6, this is after the fall and after the flood, God says to Noah, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. In other words, there will be accountability for shedding human blood, and the reason is then given for as the image of God has God made humankind. The reason we are not to murder one another is because other human beings are the image of God. If we, if we murder another person, we are attacking God himself because that person is intended to be a reflection of his rule and of his presence. So if God can say after the fall and after the flood that the image of God is the basis for treating each other with dignity and for valuing human life, then I don't think it's fair to say in Genesis 5, to go back to that passage, that Seth is not the image of God. Apparently, everyone is still the image of God after the fall, after the flood. Instead, what I think is going on in Genesis 5 is that God is giving us an analogy He's showing us a little bit, unpacking for us a little bit what it means to be the image of God. We are the image of God, just like Seth is the image of Adam, his earthly father. 
In other words, to be the image of God is to be part of God's family, part of his royal family. We have a kinship connection with God. Now, some, sometimes people ask me, well, Carmen, what about sin? What happens with sin? Something is clearly lost. I've already tried to make the case that the Imago Dei is not lost, that we are still the image of God even after sin enters the world. But something is clearly lost. There's a fracturing in that relationship between God and humanity, and it's tragic. But I want to emphasize that we are still the image of God. Even if we turn our back on God, even if we fail to recognize our God-given identity, we are still his image. It's, you can imagine this in a family. Imagine it, perhaps you have children of your own. Imagine one of your children refuses to speak with you. They rebel against you, they move away, and they never talk to you again. That's tragic. It represents a, a, a breach in what God has designed for family relationships to be like. But no matter how your child strays, and no matter how long the, the breach between you lasts, there's nothing that your child can do to erase the fact that they are your child. There's a DNA connection between you. There's a chrome, they got chromosomes from you and from your spouse. Our essential connection with God is like that DNA. It, it's to be the image of God is to say something about where we came from and who, who our divine parent is. So there's nothing we can do to erase that. And if your child someday turns back and reunites with you and you start working on your relationship and are able to have a stronger one, you don't have to adopt that child. You, they already are your child. There's an essential biological connection that remains unchanged whether you're relating to one another or not. And so in a similar way, I contend that every human being is the image of God. That, that the imago dei or the image of God is not a capacity, but it's a status. So the, the history of interpretation that has attached the imago dei to a particular capacity is, I think, misguided because, because if we attach the image of God to a certain capacity, say rationality or our intellect, then we end up with people across a whole sliding scale some who are more rational than others. How rational is a newborn baby? And are we going to say that that baby is not quite the image of God because they lack rationality? I don't think that's helpful. Uh, and I think it actually gets us into big trouble because as soon as you have someone who is underdeveloped or who has experienced dementia or who perhaps experiences lifelong mental disability, so that they don't have their full rational capacities. Um, if you attach the image of God to that, then we have humans along a sliding scale and, and we have different levels of being the image of God. Scripture doesn't describe it in that way. Scripture describes every human being as the image of God and that the Imago Dei is not a capacity, but a status. It's not something that I have more of than you do or you have more of than I do. It's not something that if we behave really well, we'll be more the image of God. 
We already are the image of God. It, we are th his three-dimensional representatives. So if you have a human body, you're the image of God. That status entails a responsibility to rule over creation on God's behalf. It comes with the territory of being the image. Now, if for some reason you're unable to rule on God's behalf, if there's, if you have some limitation or some uh, health consideration that, that say makes you bedridden or even in a coma, that doesn't do anything to affect your essential identity as the image of God. There's nothing we can do to be more of God's image. Male and female are both the image of God. We are designed to rule and reign together. Being God's image makes us family, not just with God, but with each other. Because if I'm a child of God, then every other human being that I meet is part of God's royal family as well, whether they realize it or not. That identity cannot be lost or diminished. Now, of course, the New Testament talks about us being conformed to the image of Christ. And so you're going to hear later in another session about Jesus, the image of God. I'll just say here that as we are conformed to Christ, we become more like our truest selves. Jesus is someone who lived fully in alignment with his identity as the image of God. And we too can grow into alignment that as we have this identity as God's image, but sometimes we live out of alignment with it. And as we, as we bring our lives into alignment with our true identity as God's image, we will reflect more and more of his glory to a watching world. So what are the implications of this truth uh, that we are the image of God? Well, first off the bat, we have to say uh, that creation care is a significant factor in what it means to be human. Adam and Eve are told not only to rule, but to take care of the garden. They're supposed to protect the food sources, to keep things ordered in the garden, to guard from intruders who are there to cause havoc. And so creation care remains one of our human tasks. We can think together about ways to steward the wonderful resources God has given us in our world. It also has implications for gender roles. As I've already expressed, God designed us to work as a team, to work side by side. And I'm afraid that for much of church history, the church has been leaning into a vision of gender and gender roles that's grounded in Genesis 3 rather than Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3 is where we find a hierarchy and a domineeringness uh, that where the, the, the wife or the woman is, is desiring her husband and he is ruling over her. That's the first time in scripture where we have a, a ruling over other humans. And it's a result of the fall, not part of God's good creation design. So I want to call the church to come back to Genesis 1 and 2 to explore more fully the kind of partnership that we were intended to have so that all can flourish. There are so many implications for race and for ethnicity. I don't know what particular pressures you have in Scotland related to this issue, but what I know is that around the world, there is always the temptation to value people who look like me and devalue those who seem different than I do, than I am. And so whether that's by skin color, by accent, by language spoken, by skills, 
we have to guard so carefully against looking down on anyone because every human being is the image of God. We're meant to be together part of God's human family. It has implications for class. I've, I, I don't know how things are in a Scottish context, but in the United States, we are more, I'm told we are more class divided now than we were 50 years ago that I am less likely to encounter people who are from a different income bracket and a different class background than I am, um, than myself, than I was as a child. So that our churches were far more integrated 50 years ago, where you had people from every level of society. And now we've, we've developed these micro communities where we hang out with people who look like us, who have the same education as us, the same types of jobs. And we're, we don't have that interaction with a cross-section of humanity. This is a problem because it when we only hang out with people in our same life circumstance, we become unaware of the pressures and the problems and the privileges and opportunities that are around us. We need to uh, to do to follow what the New Testament writers tell us. One of Paul's deepest concerns for the early church was to pull down the barriers that divided Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus, and to ensure that early Christian communities were, were being like family to each other. They were eating meals together, um, young and old, rich and poor, male and female, they were a family. And I think we have work to do in that area. If every person is the image of God, then it doesn't matter what type of disability you might have. You can't disqualify yourself from being the image of God. And if we look around at our churches in the United States, we find that our buildings, our church buildings, are some of the least accessible buildings. I don't know how it is in the UK, but I, I want to challenge you to begin to look outside of your own experience and consider, are we, are we inviting to the table people of every range of ability and disability, or have we made it difficult by having buildings that are not accessible or by having by setting up our services in ways that don't allow everyone to participate. If every human being is fully the image of God, then getting married doesn't make us more of God's image and losing a marriage doesn't make us lose any of God's image. I think the church today is it's high time we developed a deeper theology of singleness that we could see ways for single and married to do life together rather than uh, cordoning each other off in different categories. Um, again, in my context, we have a lot of work to do on that. And finally, our work. We were made for work. We were made to work. It's clear from Genesis 1, 5, and 9 that God's given us a job to do. Our work matters. We've been given agency to participate in, in God's work in the world, except we have to guard against the crowning of our work and making it bigger than it actually is. So we were made to work. Our work matters, but it doesn't make us matter. We are already fully the image of God without lifting a finger, just by being in a human body, we are God's image. And so as we, as we engage in our work, we do it with energy, we do it with passion, we do it with excellence, but it's, we don't do our work so that we can mean something 
or so that we can become something valuable. We are already as valuable as we are we'll, as we will ever be. And so I, I would encourage you to look at your work as a way of serving God, but not as a way of trying to um, prop up your own identity. Instead, look to God to understand that true identity. I want to close with a story. And it's a story that happened here in Southern California before I lived here um, several years ago in the fall of 2019, before the pandemic, I came down to Southern California for a conference. And after seven days of hanging out with college presidents and provosts and tenured professors and authors of important books, I headed to the train station to catch a train, an Amtrak train that would take me up to the city of Los Angeles. I was in San Diego. It was just a, about an hour and a half, two hour train ride to get up to Los Angeles. And as I was waiting in the train depot, I, I looked over and caught the eye of a man who stood there with his big black suitcase on wheels and he smiled at me and I smiled back. And then I found my seat and I settled in for a 45 minute wait for my train. And the man came over made his way across the terminal and sat down beside me and struck up a conversation. And for the next 45 minutes, I had one of the most life-giving conversations I have ever had. This man was an amazing listener. He asked wonderful questions, and he shared about his own life, and I shared about mine. I found out pretty quickly that he was a believer, and we traded scriptures, and we talked about the way that God was working in our lives. I was so encouraged. He, he looked into my eyes and spoke healing into areas of my life that were wounded. And I just, my heart felt so full. But here's what you need to know about this man that makes this all the more remarkable. The man I was speaking to, and I don't even know his name, was experiencing homelessness. He didn't have a place to live. Everything he owned was in that black suitcase on wheels. He was a U.S. Army veteran, and he was living on the streets, trying to get an education and trying to make a difference in the world. And what really struck me was that here is a man who, by the world standards, had almost nothing. And yet he was so grounded. He knew exactly who he was. And he was so comfortable in his own skin, and he lived out of that so that he was able to be other-centered and such a blessing. I, the next day, hopped on an airplane to fly home to Canada from Los Angeles, and I sat next to a man who came onto the plane holding nothing but his cell phone. And we struck up a conversation, and, and I soon found out this man was wealthy. He owned a major uh, business. He built houses in San Francisco. He owned tens of thousands of hectares of land in Canada. He traveled all around the world checking the supply chain and checking on the equipment and supervising his workers. But what I learned on that flight is that he was a very broken man. He was in the middle of losing his third marriage. His children wanted nothing to do with him. And he was, he said, I, I don't know who I am. I'm on a quest to find myself. And so as we sat there on that plane, I, I began to reflect what on, on such a contrast, two conversations, two men, one 
by the world's standards who had nothing but had everything because he knew who he was in Christ. He knew his identity as God's image and he lived out of that. The other man who had it all and yet had nothing, his life was falling into pieces and he didn't know who he was. To every human being is the image of God. Both of these men were the image of God. One knew it and one did not. So my encouragement to you today is to to sink let that truth sink into your heart you are the image of god there's nothing you can do to make god love you more or less to be more valuable than you already are and consequently every person around you is the image of god so as you as a as a network of churches begin to think about how to reach into your communities and how to love your neighbors I pray that you will be able to see every person as someone made as God's image, someone with inherent dignity and worth who might just need a nudge to to discover, to help them discover their God-given identity and their God-given purpose. That is the task that every church around the world is engaged in, and it's one that is so thrilling and so encouraging. And so I pray a blessing over each of you and your churches, that the Spirit of God would stir in your midst, that you would know who you are and why you're here. Thank you.